welcome to Modern Anarchy, the podcast featuring real conversations with conscious objectors to the status quo. I'm your host, Nicole. Cassidy. Join us for a conversation about creating a world beyond the status quo of relationships. Together we talk about building your relational garden, tuning into the wisdom of our bodies, and finding secure attachment in community. Welcome back to another episode of Modern Anarchy. Mm, anytime that I get to talk about relationship anarchy is such a joy. Y'all know that my dissertation is the first research study on relationship anarchy. It is a qualitative phenomenological study interviewing relationship anarchists, and I have been snuggled up with Fat Cat, me, and all my data from these interviews on these fall cozy days with a hot cup of tea just typing away, pages on pages for that dissertation. Um, I still have a lot to go, and I'm delighted to share with you the findings from my research, the first research study on relationship anarchy in 2024, once I have it more settled and all put together. But anytime that I get to talk about the concepts of relationship anarchy in a more dynamic and conversational style is such a joy because the values of relationship anarchy are so deep within my core and within my being. And, you know, from my research, from this conversation, I think a lot of us relationship anarchists feel the same way. These values extend way beyond romantic and or sexual connections. It is about platonic connections. It is about community. It is about larger structures. And there is so much here. And Melina was such a joy to have on the podcast. They are clearly such a source of knowledge on the topic and a leader within the community. And so it's a pleasure to co-create these conversations with the guest on the show. And Yeah, I think one of the biggest things that I want to share from my research is that I'm finding how much relational skill and complexity is needed to navigate relationship anarchy. And so I am just in awe of the ways that I hear of different communities that are holding, you know, community classes on navigating conflict and communication and growing together. I mean, Dear listener, if you are resonating with the topics of relationship anarchy in this conversation, just know that you are a part of a large cultural movement that is happening. From my data, even just the Google search of relationship anarchy has drastically increased in the last couple of years, and people are starting to ask deeper questions about their relationships, and the ways that we have existed are no longer serving us. Yeah, we are starting to construct a new paradigm. And with that paradigm comes a lot of deconstruction of those previous beliefs. But I will say that I am just so in awe of the ways that love is an abundant resource. I know that time and energy is not, but 
I am amazed by the ways that love continues to beget more love in relationship anarchy. And in terms of relationship anarchy versus libertarianism, I mean, to answer it simply, and it is obviously not simple, right? But it's important to remember that we are never just an individual. We exist in relationship with others, with our larger society, with nature, with all these other factors. We're never just alone in silo. And even when we look down to the smallest of atoms, right, and we know from quantum mechanics research that even having the observer watch the atom changed the dynamics, right? So even on the smallest scale, that level of connection and community and presence changes the phenomenon itself. And we know that on our scale, relationally, we are not alone. From psychology, our sense of self is created by our relationships, whether that's relationships to our parents, friends, lovers, all of that creates our psyche and how we see ourselves. And I'm always talking about that in terms of mental health and our well-being and it's just so important to remember that when we are moving in the world as relationship anarchists, sure, we have to listen to our own needs and our own desires and our own pleasure, but that does not negate the realities that we exist within community, and we have to be thinking about interdependence, the self in relation. And when we have that perspective, oh, so much transformation is occurring within these relationship anarchist communities. And dear listener, if you are resonating with the ideas and the values of relationship anarchy and are new to this world, welcome. We embrace you. Come join. Come learn more. And for those of you that are running with this in your communities, I am so inspired by what I hear in my research and the ways that you show up for one another and that you love one another and that you continue to draw in closer connection to the people around you. And, you know, the revolution certainly might not happen in our generation, in our lifetime, but we have come so far in terms of what it means to love one another and to be in connection. And I'm just delighted to see where we will be I mean, together as a podcast in this space in 10 years, we're tuning in each week. Let's see where we're at in 10 years as we continue to grow and learn together, but also as a larger culture as this becomes more common and people understand that love truly can be abundant. Mm. I am so delighted to be joining you, dear listener, in this growth process in this community to keep stepping towards that dream and making it a reality. I'm sending you so much love on this cozy fall Wednesday morning from Chicago. I hope you enjoy today's episode and tune in. Hello, dear listener. Before we hear a word from today's sponsor, I wanted to invite you to contribute to the first study on relationship anarchy. If you are a relationship anarchist, I would love to hear your perspective on a couple of short questions that I have linked below in the show notes. My doctoral dissertation was the first study on relationship anarchy, and I'm continuing this research through the survey below 
And there's also the option, if you would like, to join me on the podcast to explore a live conversation that will be shared with all of the Modern Anarchy community. Completely optional, whether you do just the survey or looking to join me on the show, please click that link below, share it with all of your relationship anarchist friends, and I look forward to sharing the results from this research study with you sometime in the future. I'm sending you all my love, and now a word from today's sponsor. So then the first question I like to ask each guest is, how would you introduce yourself to the listeners? Oh, hmm. Uh, how would I introduce myself today is I'm a relationship radical uh, who has been confronting. Actually, no, let me change that. I, a friend of mine and I, we came up with really good words for this the other day. We are agents against the patriarchy. Um, yes. <laughs> I'm a, I am a re- relationship radical who is an agent against the patriarchy, uh, looking to create new systems that make the old ones obsolete. All right. Take me deeper. What does that mean? <laughs> I I think my whole life, I have been dissatisfied with the status quo about human relationships, not just romantic relationships, but all the interpersonal relationships. I remember watching how my parents would interact and how they would interact with other people like publicly and then how they would decompress around that privately and being Mm -hmm. like, this is messed up. This is really confusing. This does not make sense. And realizing that half of that was trauma, half of that was cultural differences, half of that was just trying to fit in in places. Mm. So I've always held that with deep curiosity and going, there has to be a better way. There has to be a way that makes more sense. And, you know, in, in my late 20s and early 30s, Uh, when I came to explore consensual non-monogamy and I came into my own queerness, that became the doorway for me to really examine human relationships again. I was coming out of a mostly monogamous, very heteronormative marriage going, I don't want to do that (laughs) ever again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, And that, I think for a lot of people, that can be the catalyst into, you start questioning one thing you've taken for granted, you start questioning everything else. And delightfully, gratefully, this journey led me down the rabbit hole of figuring out language and terms and tools and and being able to explore things as well. You know, I, I think we all bring our own unique life perspective and experiences, and we can all contribute to the exploration of these ideas. And especially when it comes to things like anarchy, there, there's no central authority on anarchy. We all contribute. And I enjoy being able to contribute from what I know is a very unique set of life experiences that I have mm-hmm. to be able to offer things into the anarchy discourse, especially with regards to how we engage as human beings together. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. Mm. I think as you were sharing like the common culture around relationships and things, I was thinking of a article that had come out a few years ago that I had screenshotted and it was like, uh, marital hatred is normal. Here's what to do with it. And I'm like, is it, is it normal? Let's ask some more questions or like I'll watch um, stand up comedy. And I think it's particularly of an older generation where it's like, oh, I hate my husband. I hate my wife. I hate my husband. I hate my wife. And I just find it so fascinating that like that's the just old a- ball and chain. 
Yeah, and that's a normal narrative that we have. So I'm curious, <laughs> yeah, how do you feel about that? <laughs> I I mean, I, I think there are some people who have made marriage and marriage-like relationships work for them in healthy ways. Right. And, and so I think it's really important that we don't discredit that that is possible. But I think the narratives we have around it, the role modeling we have around it is super unhealthy. And, and this to me is, you know, I, I talk a lot in my work about patriarchal monogamy, like there's monogamy that's really healthy and lovely and beautiful and empowered. And that is nestled in the support of community. Mm -hmm. And then there is monogamy that feeds into capitalism and consumerism and colonialism, or like has been colonially enforced, um, that, centers around patriarchal gender roles and treating women as property and you know the more enlightened perspective is treating each other as property and having like high levels of control over each other in partnership and and I mean that's not unique to monogamy there's people doing non-monogamy right. who try to carry that over too yeah. and it hurts our souls right it hurts our psyches to be in that state and the amount that we do without even realizing it, that we adapt to in our nervous systems out of the pure need for survival in that. And then those adaptations and maladaptations become part of the narrative itself. Mm -hmm. So there is a way to be a good wife, a way to be a good husband. And it's like, that's just the adaptations that work with this super unhealthy narrative. And sure, yeah, you could follow that and make it quote unquote work, but is it ultimately going to be good for you? Mm. Is it ultimately nourishing your ability to show up in relationships with others, with your children, with your family, with your colleagues, with your community? There's going to be a limitation to that. Right. And, and I think that is a really important aspect for us to consider in this era that I think we're entering where we are re-examining how we relate to one another mm -hmm. on very, very fundamental levels. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And some people, like like you said, like thrive in these various structures and really enjoy themselves in all these structures. And so we know that. I think, you know, we're sitting in the space so that there's a, there's a heavy critique, I think, in the non-monogamy space of like monogamy is so bad, right, right, like, like people tend to become radicalized so much so that they don't understand that people enjoy monogamy and thrive in monogamy. Mm -hmm. And just because it doesn't work for you doesn't mean it isn't the right solution for other people, right? Yeah. Monogamy is a strategy for safety. And if we were to look at it in terms of our social evolution as creatures, monogamy has come about because it is a strategy for safety. It is a strategy for stability. It is a strategy for security, whether that is in a, you know, capitalist economic structure, let's ensure that our children have stability. Let's ensure that we are not dying of a sexual disease that we have no technology to prevent. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, that is where we find the origins of monogamy. But those aren't the same things that we are dealing with today. We don't have the same problems that people had 2000 years ago. And even then, a lot of those issues can be addressed without going into monogamy. And I, I think when people are stepping out of monogamy into exploring more creative relating, whether that's conscious monogamy or non-monogamy, I, I think there's that existential fear that comes up because whether you like it or not, 
so many of us have been programmed to believe that monogamy is going to be our safety blanket and that anything outside of that is going to be inherently unsafe. And our nervous systems respond to that lack of safety. And we might respond to that by doubling down and being very raw, 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 non-monogamy is the way. Right. Um, or we might respond to that with pure terror. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'd even push you to say like monogamy was I mean, like when we really talk about the history of it, right? Like it, it comes from a practice of property. Yeah. Right. Like when we yeah. actually look at it, it comes from like not even safety. It comes from a practice of control. And I think yeah. kind of like you're saying, like the things that were happening then are not necessarily the same context happening now. So someone can enjoy monogamy in a way that is not about property, right? Like there's beautiful ways to write your narrative and to enjoy that space and all the meaning making and like the sacredness of that contract that you're doing with someone. But like when we look historically, like just purely historically yeah. at the actual origins, yeah, safety, control. Cause I mean, yeah. we look at the actual history of love and relationships it was always that like you would create a family stable structure to make money because that's how you mm -hmm. and how you survived or maybe to make crops and stuff, you know, all that. And it, it was survival. Like my great grandmother, yeah. my, my grandmother's family were all refugees and mm -hmm. they're the men in their family. I mean, they were survivors of uh, genocide and mm -hmm. the men in their family were all killed. And so my great grandmother with two young children, one of whom had just been born as they were fleeing from this atrocity had no choice like as a single as a widowed woman yeah as an ethnic minority she had no um she had right. no power in yeah. her society so she had to get married right she you know she married out of necessity to try and create something that would bring stability for her, her extended family not mm -hmm. just her own children and that was a very with mixed results yeah and and that's only like a hundred and something years ago so yeah to go and okay like we have different choices now is amazing totally and i mean i always love the like uh historical facts that marital rape wasn't illegal until it started happening in the 70s they started changing the laws mm -hmm. but it wasn't until 1992 mm -hmm. that in all 50 states marital rape was made illegal so 1992, mm -hmm. we think about women getting credit cards in 1970s, you know, like, so it's like, yeah, within the last 50 years, a lot has changed. And mm -hmm. I guess I, you know, I'm just curious what the future looks like in terms of relating now that there is not that level of, I mean, there is obviously still clearly control, but not that level that we were having in the 1970s right. or the 1990s. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm really curious about it too. And I, I I think a lot of the pushback that we see around feminism and around gender rights and, and all of these things right now is coming from people who are facing that existential fear in themselves because they don't know how else to engage other than these scripts that they've been mm -hmm. given. And they, they don't know how to improvise. They don't know how to unpack it and go, oh, what if I don't assume what if I have to ask? What if we have to have a process of collaboration that is going to take time and I cannot get immediate gratification in this moment? Yeah. And that is very challenging when what you're used to is access to immediate gratification through your relationships. Mm. 
when you what you're used to is there is a standard way to do things and I don't have to think about it a whole lot and then people suffer though that's the thing like at the end of the day I'm all for people thriving in whatever relationship structure works for them Mm -hmm. however we see lots of people suffer and in pain like going back even to that like marital hatred is normal all that starts like it's fascinating the amount of pain and suffering that exists within these relationships and particularly also like the how do i say the drop in sexuality that happens frequently in those long-term relationships and because of our society's dare i say puritanical values (laughs) that discredits the importance of your eroticism in a lifelong continuum says oh yeah that's fine so it's like Whenever so I've get I've gotten feedback when I'm talking about non non monogamy and stuff from like people in my circle who ha- are monogamous who felt like you know like I'm talking poorly about monogamy it's like I you have to be able to talk about the fact that people are suffering under that structure yeah. and because they don't know the informed consent that there's another world possible then yeah I'm gonna talk about it however mm-hmm. if you're thriving if you're enjoying all of that like. I'm not speaking to you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I am speaking to that person who um, Ray McDaniel came on to talk about gender and was talking about how like it felt like their gender felt like a shoe that didn't fit. It was just like a little mm. too tight. And at least for me, that's how the ideas of monogamy felt. Like it was like, this is a little too tight. Like I'm not going to have the freedom to to yeah. love other people like I want yeah. to. That's who I'm speaking to. And I'm sure that's yeah. who you're speaking to. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I, I think, it, you know, I would even say that that line of questioning has expanded because it's not just monogamy that we're questioning. Mm-hmm. It's all the pieces of the status quo about relationships. Yeah. It is the gender roles. It is the, I mean, it's related to monogamy, but the ownership and possession. It is the exclusivity. It is why are we prioritizing sexual relationships in the first place? Mm-hmm. You know, how do we discover a secure attachment in a world that is so unpredictable and unstable? How do we come together for mutual aid and support in a way that feels good and equitable? Mm-hmm. How do we navigate these privileges and the disparities that we've had no control over? Right. And, and how do we come together and relate in ways that help us heal from the trauma of those mm-hmm. and thrive as we move forward? These are big questions. And I think a lot of people are exploring them from a lot of different angles. And so many of them end up going, hmm, what about this? Like, why am I being exclusive in my affections here? Mm. What what if there was another possibility? And Mm -hmm. in in my work, I'm very adamant that I don't think non-monogamy is for everybody. I I really want to support people to find a path that is true for them. But I think one of the really toxic parts of monogamy is very much centered on this North American idea of the nuclear family that creates a microcosm of individuality where you are separating yourself from community, you are in competition with other families. And in that space, capitalism can thrive, absolutely. But at the cost of our humanity, I think. 
Yeah, you'd love the episode I just released with Laura May Northrup, a therapist. We were talking about the ways that like mm -hmm. capitalism separates us from like, yeah, transformative growth, being able to stay in connection. And yeah, it's much better if we have a nuclear family model because then I can sell you multiple dishwashers and multiple yeah. things because you don't need to share. You need your own. And actually, that's how you make meaning in this world is if you have this perfect little picture of the perfect mm -hmm. little life with the symbol statuses, then you're or the status symbols then you're gonna have joy love and happiness like let me mm -hmm. keep selling you that narrative 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 mm -hmm. rather than like what if yeah we shared more love in all the different ways mm -hmm. whichever ways you want to choose to do that with more people and look yeah. to a more community focus rather than the sort of like individual which like like i'm sure you know right creates this level of like let me protect what i have let me protect yeah. what i have god forbid you come near my stuff well and and, and we go into we go into fear and survival responses and that yeah. individuality and mm -hmm. so many people feel the overwhelming burden of that pressure of i cannot ask for help or if i receive and accept help this somehow means that I am less than as a human being. And there's so much that we've been told we have to do to demonstrate that we are a successful grown up mm -hmm. that revolves around demonstrating individualism. Mm -hmm. And I, I think what's really important, like, I don't think we should go into groupthink mentality either, but I think interdependence is the yeah. word I'm looking for here. Yeah. Like that balance between we can be in community relationship and we can also be in relationship with ourselves. Being mm -hmm. in relationship with yourself is not, uh, it's not greedy. It, it's not like a negative thing. It is not shameful. It is powerful. And you can only really be in relationship with others when you have that sense of self, because then you're not going to get overridden by other people's desires. You're not going to lose yourself in the sea of other people's wants. You're still going to maintain your individuality, but we cannot be an individual without community mm -hmm. because we cannot survive by ourselves. I read a story recently about a family that went to try and live off grid and it, they didn't, it didn't work. You know, mm. they, they died very tragically, um, which is heartbreaking mm -hmm. and extra heartbreaking that that was what they felt they had to do, that they were so tied to this idea of like, no one around can help us. No one's going to understand us. We're just going to pull ourselves away from the world. And I get it. Like I need my times where I need to disconnect sure. from the world and introvert away. But it's a hard truth, I think, for many people that we do need to be in relationship with each other in order to not just survive, but thrive. Sure, sure. And I'll even like up the ante here to say like what you were kind of hitting on, like the fact that I'll caveat this one because I think about this one all the time. But like there is no individual self like mm -hmm quite literally some of the theories that I work through from like a more feminist take of psychodynamic theory is that we are always created by our relationships. One of the, when I try and think about it in terms of a metaphor, I like think of like all of these mirrors that are facing inward in a circle, right? So you have all these different relationships and like you're right at that center of all of those mirrors coming in. So like there is a sense of self that experiences life as its own like existential being, you know, like no one went through the exact like, radical combination of life experiences that I have gone through that you have gone through. So we are individual, but like quite literally that circle is all of those mirrors, whether it be people, whether it be mm -hmm. nature, whether it be mm -hmm. society, whether it be mm -hmm. your understanding of God, like 
all of that forms your psyche. It's not like we just like, yeah. in my, in my opinion, and maybe we could talk deep about that. Like, I don't think we're born with these like innate things per se, as much as we are shaped in this like yeah. nurture way. I mean, we can get into epigenetics. So there's some genetic <laughs> stuff about that too, though, you know, but like, but truly like, it's about the relationship. So this like hyper, yeah, Western individual take of like, you need to find yourself before you can be in relationship with others. I'm like, <laughs> that's funny because that's not, it, that's never going to happen. You know what I mean? Well, and I, I think it's, it's, there's a tensegrity in that of the more I know myself, the more I am able to show up in relationships sure. with others. Yeah. And also the more I have authentic, genuine, supporting, loving mm -hmm. relationships with others, the more I actually have the resources to connect with myself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like it, it, I don't think it is one needs to happen before the other. I think they happen together. I think we are growing those together. Yep. And, and this is, I think this is hard because that very Western uh, individualistic mentality is also very linear. Mm. You know, we talk about the relationship escalator, that inevitable yeah. trajectory of relationships that you're just going to keep going until, you know, you have your person. Now you're on that escalator. Shame on you if you step off of it or fall off it or push off it. But, you know, what if we don't have an escalator? What if instead we exist in a landscape of relating and we have the ability to craft that landscape into an ecology that supports us? So I am putting in the effort to nurture my own relationship ecology. I am making choices about who I relate with and how I relate. And I'm going, huh, like, do, do you work really well in this part of my garden? Do you function better over here? And I say this as someone who gardens a lot, right? Yeah. So like, I'm, I'm constantly looking at like, how do we reconfigure, you know, right now in my garden, I'm like, oh, next year, I think I'm going to change where I put the cucumbers. Mm -hmm. They're going to be somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And we do that in our life. And ideally we get to a point where we have an ecology of relationships that is self-sustaining and then that nourishes us. And we might add in things every so often from outside, but to be able to experience ourselves within the context of our environment, yeah. I think is so important. And, and I mean, we're, we're kind of touching on this as well, as well, but you know, that also brings into mind actual physical environmental awareness, which I think is a part of relationship anarchy that it, it does not get discussed enough mm. that, you know, in terms of anarchism being a social movement to decenter the the power it's like how do we look at nature nature doesn't have centralized power nature has evolved in these brilliant ways and there are times where things are one way and then it balances out somehow and then there are disasters and then years later things might thrive again yeah and how do we move back into a good relationship with that? Because right now our relationship with that is not good. No. And we see the impacts of that right now, yeah. where that relationship has gone out of balance and is unhealthy to the mm -hmm. extremes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. How, right? That's the interesting question. How, <laughs> right? And I think that as you were talking about the garden and the different relationships you have in your life, I mean, I have a post-it note somewhere over here. I was like, yeah, relationship anarchy feels like a wild acid trip. And it <laughs> does. It reminds me a lot when I was like deconstructing Christianity. And like, mm -hmm. if, if, if I'm not living for God, 
then what, then what am I doing here? Oh my gosh. And so like that existential process of deconstructing, like you said, the relationship escalator, these other Mm -hmm. ways that like, you know, in terms of our existential existence, we're always looking for um, the ability to have control, right? So like, Mm -hmm. it's, and I mean, we can get into like, yeah, archetypes of narratives and stuff. So like, it's much easier to have this sort of like, hey, look, this is going to happen than this than this than that. And like, that feels really good. And to again, like we said, some people thrive there. Great, right? Many of us don't. And so then it creates this wide landscape, like, you know, a psychedelic experience where the walls start to crumble of what your mm-hmm. reality once was. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh my God, what am I doing? But on the other side of that beauty is the space to create your own garden. Like the relationships that I have are so multifaceted, right? Like there is no one person that is my life partner. That's Mm -hmm. me. That is me. And then I have these other people that show various parts of my identity and connect Mm -hmm. with. And we can have these sorts of conversations that the other partner doesn't want to have or these activities. And like then at the center, like, is me. Mm-hmm. And I, I think one of the challenges people come across in that is we are so conditioned to look to power, mm. to look to someone to guide us. Yeah. And I, I think that also comes into, I mean, that that's that Christianity, patriarchal approach. I think that's also then led into parenting mm. uh, methods that we see predominantly in Western cultures and Western influence cultures. I mean, we infantilize ourselves in a sense in that way. And we look to who's in charge and we exist in these systems of dominance where, oh, I want to get somewhere. I have to prove I have more power than someone else. And it's very, very hard to step out of that and go, what if, what if that's actually just an illusion? Mm -hmm. What if that idea of power structures is just a game that we're playing and we don't have to play that game. Mm -hmm. And I I mean, I I think it's no coincidence that there are so many people who are in the psychedelic field who are getting more curious about things like relationship anarchy and non-monogamy because when we are in that experience, like you're saying, like a a big acid trip or (laughs) mushrooms or any other medicine that is helping your brain to deconstruct its rigidity, And you can do that in a healthy way and open up into that plane of what if there wasn't that rigidity, you start to be able to imagine other possibilities, but then putting that into practice when you're not on acid, uh, easier said than done. (laughs) Yeah. Many a long conversation, tears, you know, many a long conversation and tears. (laughs) Well, and and it's hard. (laughs) Well, and, and we're so used to deriving that sense of safety in our nervous system from knowing where the power is in somatics. We call this orienting to safety. We are always orienting to safety all the time. Most of the time we don't have to put a lot of effort into it because we have a routine. It's like, I might hear, you know, uh, the, the trucks going down the alleyway outside my house. I know what it is, right? I, I know it's garbage day, but I hear something that's outside of the norm and I don't know what it is. So I go, Mm -hmm. am I safe or am I not? And when we are deconstructing the, the, the reliance that we have on these power structures, that question of am I safe or am I not becomes hard to answer because we don't yet know. And hanging out in that ambiguity 
is very challenging totally. because that is where we have, that's where we experience anxiety is. I don't know if I'm safe or not. Yeah. That's where we can go into states of panic. And then there's a whole bunch of repercussions that that can have both like on the way that our relationships are functioning, because we are going to do all sorts of things to try and, and figure out safety, like trying to have power over others. Mm-hmm. And there's also the, the nervous system impact. If we stay in state spaces of uncertainty and anxiety for a prolonged amount of time, that then has an impact on us in a physical way. Oh, totally. And I, I think of like, I think about the experience many of us had during the pandemic, you know, again, very hard to orient to safety, hard to know because there's new information coming out all the time. This is the thing we cannot see or touch mm-hmm. that is a threat. And I think, you know, so many people bought into conspiracy theories because there is a story of power in conspiracy theories. And if we can believe in that, that story, then that gives us something to orient towards. Whether it's true or not doesn't matter. We orient towards it and then our nervous system can settle. And I think in a similar way, when we're working on deconstructing normative relationships from this anarchist perspective, and we face that anxiety point, we can create structures to superimpose onto that that are actually just reinforcing the power structures mm. that we're trying to leave behind because it's it's keeping us in that fantasy of like, oh, I'm safe enough, I'm safe enough. Yeah, one penis policy, there you go. <laughs> yeah, exactly, it's a great example. I've got control. <laughs> You've deconstructed that one in an episode before. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's not to say that we should just like throw everything out and not be safe because that's not good either. We... We need to wean ourselves off of that. And that could look like, let's create a temporary container to explore this in. Let's make it safe enough. And then, okay, now let's take it a little bit further. Now let's take it a little bit further. I think it is totally okay to have training wheels. Oh, yeah. So long as you are clear what the training wheels are, you're not surprising people with like, hey, surprise, I actually, my relationships have training wheels and we don't know what we're doing yet. Yeah. Like, it's, I think it's okay to be messy. And, and again, this is one of those power structure things. It is so hard to own our messiness. Mm-hmm. If you own your messiness. You're weak. You are weak. You're needy. You're, How dare you? Or you're hurting people. You're you're an abuser or this and that. And it's like, there are real abusers out there. I believe truth eventually stands clear from fiction when it comes to that. And most of the time when we are doing harm in our relationships, it is purely because we are messy and we haven't figured out what we're doing yet. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to have more space for that messiness that messiness is healing. I mean, that messiness allows us to see where we have work to do, Mm -hmm. where we have, you know, I I think both individually, but also relationally, I don't think we need to fixate on messiness necessarily. Like if something is like 99% messy, I go, "Hmm, like what, what's happening here? Like how much is this actually nourishing you to be in a space of messiness all the time? But Mm -hmm. I think to honor that messiness is part of human relating, that opens up a space for us to liberate ourselves from a lot of the constrictions that monogamy encourages because monogamy is so much about perfectionism and you know, there's a perfect way to be and so on and so forth. And I like, there's one 
way more or less to do monogamy and there's an infinite number of ways to do non-monogamy and the way that I do it may not be how you do it and we have to have the freedom to figure that out and then if we come together in relationship how are we then navigating the ways that we relate together based on our different sets of experiences mm -hmm. that could be messy and it's okay for mess to exist mess does not need to mean that it's an end or that the sky is falling and I think we tend to go more to that place of like ah, oh, this is a disaster mm -hmm. because we don't have that experience that nervous system resilience around I can experience mess in my relationships and that doesn't mean it's the end. Right, right, right. Because that's inevitable, right? We are all messy humans. That is an inevitable piece of human nature. Yeah. It is my belief that human nature thrives in love and connection, not in hate, discord, and violence. I think those happen much like when we look at like, you know, even other, I guess we're complicated other animals, but like when I think about like dogs, right? Like that nice puppy that grows up and then versus the one that attacks because it's been through experiences mm -hmm. where that's how it's learned how to defend itself. Like in my yeah. view, humans are love and we want that, but because of systems and big, big, big systems, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot going on there. And if your family structure, when you mm -hmm. grew up, if there was ruptures in the dance of relating, if there was stepping on the toes and it resulted in a bomb, mm -hmm. someone leaves, someone gets abused, someone gets hurt, then like, yes, it's gonna be hard when we come into relationships to like change those patterns yeah. of expectation that like, that's where it's gonna go. So for, for me and my own journey with that, like being able, I mean, like therapy one, but just in general to be in like relationships with people where we stick through the messiness and we don't run away from the messiness mm -hmm. has allowed my nervous system to relax. And so I, when I look at the relationships I have where we do that, I'm like, man, I'm, I feel very privileged in that way to have a community of people that when I say something that offends them, they're able to tell me back and we mm -hmm. have a conversation about it and then we continue onward yeah. like that is beautiful and and i think that becomes possible when your relationships are held in community yes where it's not just you and the other person trying to figure it out which i and murray bowen talks about this that like triangles are the most stable form of relationships and and i think that is key to understanding non-monogamy and relationship anarchy that our relationships do not exist in this vacuum of privacy culture like that that we are not allowed to talk about our problems with others I think I I mean I've done this for others in my coaching practice and I've had others come in and help me with this myself and I've seen mm -hmm. it time and time again that sometimes to navigate the messiness oftentimes to navigate the messiness it's more than two people can do and it helps to have neutral loving parties come in not necessarily people that you're dating, but people in your community who can care for you and hold you, whether that is elders or wise people or a counselor or whatever form that takes, but to come in and support the messiness and create that space for permission to be messy. Mm -hmm. And that's where we grow. That's where we grow. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And I think something that's coming up for me, at least in my own experience, is when we were talking about the training wheels of coming into non-monogamy and all these pieces, I kind of worry about this space of like, oh, let me try non-monogamy and see if it feels right to me in my body only because my own lived experience is that it has felt really wrong in mm -hmm. my body. 
because of the society we live in just in the same way that when i was raised christian and i started to realize my queer identity it felt very wrong and also right but very wrong in my body because it's unfamiliar yes and so the people who are like oh i have this itch towards non-monogamy but it feels so scary i just want to normalize the hell out of that you know in my practices of non-monogamy from like where i started to where i'm at now what i'm able to Mm -hmm. like i use rock climbing as a metaphor frequently because like the first time i rock climbed it was terrifying right and like the things i do now are radically different and they don't scare me in the same way It, it has been such a process of you know comparing it to exposure therapy yeah exposure therapy and somatic work and lots of conversations Mm -hmm. because yeah seeing my partner kiss someone else in front of me the first time huge somatic dysregulation and then you can have the subsequent thoughts of like maybe this isn't for me maybe i can't do this oh my god oh my god right so like being able to like be with your partners in that and you know like name that feeling so that it can release the power checking in with the body and coming back and then like specifically like aligning with your values that has been a big one for me is like yeah i'm scared right now but my value is to get to that top of the mountain and that has helped. (laughs) And that's where that self-relationship piece is so valuable, right? Because you're talking about building self-awareness. And I always tell people like when you experience that kind of triggering that activation, whether it's jealousy or another emotion, like, can you learn to understand what that emotion is telling you? Right. Right. What is this a clue? This is a clue about something, Mm -hmm. something there is activating you. Something there is making you feel unsafe. Is it a lack of need being met for you? Is it, and is it like you want to have that experience? Is it a red flag? You know, is there something that maybe your subconscious has picked up on that you aren't yet consciously cognitive of, but you are responding to in a primal level and Mm -hmm. let's get curious about it. And I think learning how to have that process of self-inquiry is so valuable, whether you're going to do non-monogamy or not, like it is so, so valuable. And to do that, we really have to slow down. So, you know, I see a lot of people who are like, intellectually I'm on board. I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to get over it. I'm going to like push myself to do it. Yeah. I'll go to the sex party and watch my partner have sex with all the people. And then they freak out and they are like, why do I feel so broken? And Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, you know, you were brave, Mm -hmm. but also you didn't need to push yourself that much. That was too much for your nervous system to process in one go. What if we rewind and slow down and give yourself that opportunity to actually feel Mm -hmm. all the things that you're feeling, to actually dig in and understand what is the core need that is wanting to be heard and seen and acknowledged? Mm -hmm. What is the, the root of you right now? And when we slow down and dig into the root, that can be confronting because we might see oh, this relationship that I was in actually is not as compatible as I thought it was. That can be challenging because maybe we start to go, oh, wow, I have very different values from the people that I'm around right now. And I don't know how to find the people Mm -hmm. who share my values because I don't even know what those are yet. I just know it's not that. And so that process of slowing down to understand what's at the root of our activation 
it's confronting, but it is so valuable. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where I'm like, we have to do that self-relationship work. Yeah. If we're not doing that self-relationship work, we're not going to be able to effectively thoroughly deconstruct those power structures in mm-hmm. our lives. Mm-hmm. And we have to be able to do that in order to relate in authentic ways that are not constricted by those power structures. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, yeah, the best way to do that is to, like you said, have curiosity rather than get angry, right? I think about like (laughs) meditation practices when we fall off, you know, to come back instead of being like, Mm -hmm. I can't believe I did it, you know, and like start that whole snowball of thoughts to be Mm -hmm. curious to just mm-hmm. be open and at times to not get too even locked up into the cognitive and really just feel the body. Like you said, like mm-hmm. these practices of relating are go beyond non-monogamy. Like I ask my body, like, does it feel good to go to this event? Does this meet, when do I feel satisfied in my meal, right? Mm-hmm. Like all mm-hmm. these ways that I am continuing to check in so that we can have pleasure and thrive rather than just like, yeah, let me scarf this down. Let me hit up that party. Let me go to the sex orgy. You know, it's like, <laughs> where does my body feel okay? And then also noticing that like slight window of tolerance. It it reminds me of the work that I do in psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Like people will come in wanting that like high dose, heroic, you know, experience going there. And, you know, we talk to them, I know. And which (laughs) do everyone gets the freedom to do what they want. But we talk to them about like building a relationship with the medicine, right? Like Mm -hmm. we're going to start with a handshake okay Mm -hmm. because that's going to allow your body to feel safe right so like having some level of nerves about going into that psychedelic experience or some level of nerves going into that orgy makes sense but like being able to be aware of when you're pushing yourself past that window of tolerance so that you Mm -hmm. don't harm yourself in that path of trying to get there is that like like you're saying that really like nuanced curiosity that you need to have for your own self Oh, well, and, and in the realm of psychedelics, I think it was James Jesso I heard talking about this, that, you know, what creates a bad trip is not integrating it afterwards. Like you really have to have that space for integration because so much can happen in such a relatively short span of time. And it can take months to really integrate a peak experience with the support of psychedelic medicines. Mm-hmm. And I think in the same way in non-monogamy, like, it's so tempting to just be like, I'm a kid in a candy store. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to Pokemon. I'm going to catch them all. And I've been there, done that. Um, And it's exhilarating and it's enticing. And there's a bit of escapism that can play into there where we can use that to run away from stuff in ourselves and in our lives and to actually slow down and let ourselves feel everything mm-hmm. is actually so much more rewarding and I think helps us find a healthier way of navigating into this. Right. But then you got to dismantle internalized capitalism, which is telling me productive. <laughs> go, 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 go. I can't sit down to think about my experiences. I'm missing out on valuable time to make money. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like... Yeah. The process of being able to slow down and reflect, like to take a moment to just be grateful for what you already have, right? Like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have a lot right here rather than chasing, chasing the next, the next, the next, the next, which deeply scares me in terms of like how our society again with capitalism and just like even something like social media where like our brains have been conditioned to get dopamine at a much faster rate. Yeah. The idea of non-monogamy and having like, like this fluid 
ability to change partners, you know, like mm -hmm. I imagine that like our brains are going to become because of the internet, other things more primed, even prefer these sorts of relationships on a neural yeah. level. So what does it mean to actually like come back to like, to take a moment in all of this stuff and like, just like feel what you have, like feel what is yeah. at your fingertips already rather than the chase of the next and the next and the next. Well, and I, I think, you know, this brings to mind for me two practices that I think are super valuable. One <laughs> is grief practices. Mm, yeah. um, you know, there's a lot of grief involved in letting go of, well, waking up to the like, wow, this thing that I've been told to believe in is not the be all and end all. And it is so not working for me. And yeah. it's really not working for a lot of other people too. And even when we know it's not good, there is grief in letting go of it. Yeah. And that grief is what can manifest as anger, as denial, as avoidance, as all these things. I've written about this before, but like, I feel like we underestimate the impact of grief in the way that we do non-monogamy. Mm -hmm. and and very often even when we go through breakups there's so many other relationships around we can jump right into another and yeah. potentially avoid that grief and sometimes that can be in a healthy way that we're titrating our grief experience sure. but I don't think we talk about that grief enough mm -hmm. and then the other practice I think is so valuable here is gratitude yep. and that is such a beautiful way of affirming our relationships. You know, mm -hmm. as you're talking about the, the, the capitalism piece, I'm thinking about like, you know, in many ways, I have so much privilege to live the life that I have right now. You know, I have created a life for myself, but I didn't manifest that out of thin air. I put in hard work. You know, I am someone who has had depression for most of my life. I was recovering from a, a series of different traumas. I was living in a very expensive city, working several different jobs, losing my mind, yeah. getting very distracted and dating all the people. It was wonderful distraction from everything. Sure. And then I was like, this isn't sustainable for me. Mm. And the life that I actually aspire to is very different from this. And then I, you know, I moved away from that city. I moved into a different community. I found a way to live that was very, very cheap while I was building up my business. And all that I have today was possible because community held me. And even though what is in that landscape of community for me has changed a lot, especially over the last few years of the pandemic, the people who have showed up in that landscape of community it's not one-sided. We are giving to each other. There are ways we are supporting each other. And I'm, I'm a big believer in that we don't need to do things transactionally. I'm like, oh, my friend needs some support. I have extra money in my bank account this month. I'm going to send that there because like, that is really important to me that they mm -hmm. get support. And I just trust that that goodwill comes around because mm -hmm. that's what mutual aid is all about. And you know, I, I know some people look at me and they're like, well, like, of course you're able to do this. Cause like, you know, you're self-employed and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, yeah, but like, I only exist by the grace of community. Sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, as an individual put that intention into creating a community that would be nourishing, that would be nurturing where I am around people, where we align in our values, where we can be messy together and we're working on our shit. We, we have our issues. We have the stuff that comes up. I am constantly struck by this huge gratitude of 
I am here by the grace of my community. Yes. Which makes me want to ask you and get into a topic in terms of relationship anarchy, because I think it's interesting that for people who have been in the, what do we call this, the non-monogamous, kinky, you know, sex radical space for many Mm -hmm. years, there seems to be a very negative connotation to relationship anarchy that seems a little bit different than maybe people who are younger and coming into the word yeah. on its own without the historical context of it being in the community for a long time. But uh, yeah, so relationship libertarianism versus anarchy, <laughs> and you're talking about community. So I'm like, let's get some definitions up in here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I did not coin the term relationship libertarianism. I can't remember now. I think it was yeah. the thinking asexual possibly coined it. Oh, but okay. uh, it's such a poignant term because some people will confuse libertarianism and anarchism with each other politically, but you know, they are both looking at moving away from power centralization yes but libertarianism focuses on the individual as an individual whereas anarchism goes we supplant the power hoarding through the power of community and so in relationship libertarianism that that's where i think a lot of people confuse that they're calling what they do relationship anarchy but what it looks like they're doing is actually relationship libertarianism and i i always I, I hear the character of Cartman from South Park in my head going, <laughs> I do what I want. Um, and, and I, and, and I, you know, I understand, like, I think that if you have had a hard time being honored and trusted and, and experiencing trust in relationships, you are going to develop that approach. And I, I think there's more opportunity for us to have dialogue about relationship libertarianism as a response to trauma that is maladaptive, whereas relationship anarchy could be seen as a response to the trauma of society that is um, healthy adaptive. Because that that pull away from connection, right? That is the, I don't trust anybody. I am not responsible for anybody beyond myself. I don't have to take responsibility for how my words made you feel. That's mm-hmm. your fault. Mm-hmm. You know, these kinds of things. And I, I get where people are coming from. That I think that's a narrative that has been around in non-monogamy spaces for a long time. And I think that it is harmful because it ignores that we are all internet connected. We exist yeah. in an ecology, whether you like it or not. Yeah. And what I say is going to have an impact on people. Yeah. Not everyone's going to like it. Some people may be upset by it. I don't need to own their upset, but I can be responsive to their upset. Mm-hmm. And I think that is one of the really important differences that in this relationship libertarianism that a lot of people have been finding solace in is because they they're able to reduce how much stimulus how much stuff is going on because they get to let go of responsibility for it and say well i don't have to interact with that and they make themselves into an island of relating and then it's like well i'm only going to come off my island to go have sex with whoever i want and i don't need to like tell people about my sti results beyond what's important or I don't need to tell all my partners who they all are and, and that kind of thing. And I think there's a limit to how far that can function in terms of supporting yeah. us as human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I say it that way because I don't want to shame people who are doing that. I, I really understand 
that is something that you're doing because it works for you right now. Right. What I want to do is invite people to consider what if there is another way that could work better. Mm-hmm. And with relationship anarchy, we don't dismiss how we impact each other because the way that we are decentralizing power is through not allowing it to go to someone else is saying like, no, we are in this together. We rely on each other for survival. And so clearly something has happened. So clearly I need to pay attention to this. And how can I support you? How can I show up with you or for you? Mm -hmm. And maybe right now there isn't anything, but maybe down the road there is. And so I, I think a really fundamental part of relationship anarchy is repair and accountability. And repair and accountability is hard, especially in a society where you're not allowed to be messy. Right. Right. Especially in a society that does not have enough resources for mental health and trauma support. Our trauma support is basically functioning in triage Mm -hmm. in modern Western culture because trauma, we are not stopping the sources of trauma. Yeah. We're trying to heal trauma while still existing in traumatized ways of being. And in relationship anarchy, we get to dismantle that. We we get to go, how do we create healing spaces together? In relationship libertarianism, we're not even open to the question of doing things together. We're going, I'm you do you, I do me. And we're going to do our own thing. And I think there's an incredible amount of privilege required for that. Yeah. If you and and if you do not have the economic privilege, the mental health privilege, that all these other different kinds of privilege, then you're going to have a really hard time and you're going to get exhausted by it. And then it ends up being that relationship libertarianism is something for the elite. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and in that elitism, there's a dissociation from empathy and compassion and connection and the humanness of relating. Yeah, which I I was like chewing on that like as a trauma response, right? Again, yeah. that like in our ideal world, like people thrive in relationships, mm-hmm. in connection. And so for someone to have that, it's only me, it's only me, it's only me, you know, to like to name that as like, yeah, a maladaptive sort of way of being in relationship, I think is accurate, you know? Yeah. Like, I mean, it was also reminding me of like harm reduction philosophies with people who have chaotic relationships to drugs, right? Like Mm -hmm. that person is not choosing to harm themselves in that way. Like that substance relationship is benefiting them and giving them something that they need to survive in this context. So like having the compassion for that person that's doing that. But like, like you're saying, it's just kind of radical when you think about it, because like thinking that you exist in a silo is just like factually wrong, right? Like that's Mm -hmm. just like, like inherently factually wrong. Like that is not, I mean, again, we can look at the science of quantum mechanics and like think about how all these things, you know, like anyone who thinks they live in a silo, I'm just like, oh God, we got to start at square one with you, don't we, baby? (laughs) Well, and I think many people have fallen into that belief structure because we are so many generations deep into this individualistic approach to living. And yeah. And so stepping out of that requires a lot of work. And, Mm -hmm. and thankfully, you know, it is not quite the same when we step outside of Western culture. I mean, it's um, Dr. Kim Talbert who talks about this idea of, you know, we, we all have to have our own thing and the, and how 
monogamy and colonialism, uh, monogamy and capitalism were imposed as part of colonialism. And we go back into indigenous cultures, not just in North and South America, but also around the world. And we see a lot more communitarianism. I grew up in the Middle East and, you know, there's a lot of, of issues in, in the Middle East and gender politics stuff, but I won't go into that. But my experience growing up as a woman in the Middle East was that there was so much community support. Mm. And I mean, community support to subvert the rules around us too. But there was a spirit of community care mm. that does not exist in Western culture. Yeah. You know, I, there, there's a pain and a suffering of we are just going to discard you and you are left to survive on your own that comes in Western culture. And that is not the case. I mean, I, I am the sort of person that I'm like, oh, my friend is struggling. I have extra food. I'm going to go drop that off for them mm -hmm. because that is community care. Yeah. And I get that value from having lived in the Middle East, from having a mother who was not from this Western culture, who yeah. came very much from you know Byzantine uh, lands. And so... I think it's really, really important for us to remember, like, we do have tools available to us. There are models of how we can do this. I don't think we should just go straight up appropriate. I think that's not appropriate. But I think that we need to listen and learn and look at how do we then tap into that wisdom to create new paths forward. And that's what I said at the beginning, like I'm, I'm all about creating new paradigms that make the old ones obsolete mm -hmm. because we cannot just upend it and go, right. I'm done. <laughs> we need to create something new that works better. Mm -hmm. And I think that what works better is working together. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then I got to have a million different podcasts about how does that happen, right? What happens <laughs> when you have the person that has so much pain that they're continuing to wreck fires in your community? How yeah. do you hold those people in? How do you how do you do that transformative justice work? What does that look like, particularly in a landscape where we are so separated? So there's not so much of yeah. that desire to actually stay in community because I can just yeah. go get a new one anywhere, you know, like, yeah. It's pretty fascinating to think about like how collectively that will happen. But then I try to stay, you know, and maybe more of the positive envisioning future. And for me, I think like it's holding space, having conversations, assuming best judgment of the people mm -hmm. that you're with rather than they're attacking you. Like all of those sorts of pieces give me some sort of hope of how we can collectively move towards that world yeah. within the systems that we do have that make it really hard to yeah. do that. And I, I think one of the the places I see people trip up when they are trying to form intentional communities certainly is they try to enforce a guideline mm. and enforce a process like this is how we do accountability now you have to do this now you have to do that and i'm like you're, you're just you're falling into that old trap of creating a power structure and because you want to do this immediately because you have this sense of urgency around it and it's much harder but i think to take everything as individual circumstances and okay okay what could work what is possible here? Are you ready to talk about this yet? If you're not, that's okay. And we're going to have to figure out how to work with that. And, and so I think what that necessitates is a level of fluidity 
in the way that we create communities. And we can only have fluidity in our communities if we are also simultaneously nourishing that relationship with ourselves. Right. Because if you are nourishing that relationship with yourself, you are building more self-awareness to know what, where else can I go? Mm -hmm. And you're hopefully developing that um, somatic resilience to be able to pivot and adapt to change and circumstances altering. Mm -hmm. And you know, the more that we can collectively develop those skills, I think the better situated we are for supporting communities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So then starting with the body, the breath, right? Like what I like to think that, I mean, it's a lot of different things, right? But like I, for me, I'm continuing to spend more time thinking about what it means to come back to my body and listen to that and mm-hmm. honor that and be there because I think that is something as someone who's in the psychology field, I love to think, I love to think <laughs> <laughs> all the time, maybe too much, you know? So it's like mm-hmm. all of us like coming back to that body because yeah, the second that someone gives you a point of feedback that feels constructive, my nervous system goes, oh my God, you're attacking me. Let me mm-hmm. raw back at you, mm-hmm. you know? And if I could take that moment enough to be like, okay, I'm feeling my body is becoming defensive. I'm noticing that. I'm going to take a deep breath here. I'm going to tell you that I'm feeling this come up in my body. Maybe I need some time to go for yeah. a walk before we hit this. Maybe yeah. I need some space, right? Like that body awareness, being able to come back to that is like so crucial, like you're saying, and that relationship to self to then be in community with others. And we we have to, again, we have to slow down to be yeah. able to do that. You right. know, I, I'm one of the many millions around the world who have long COVID right mm. now. And the the core part of the recovery from that is slowing down. And one of the things that I've been thinking about, and, you know, I grew up with a mother who had chronic fatigue syndrome, so I'm no stranger to these kinds of conditions, but it really has me thinking more about tuning into my body, learning how to recognize when I need to rest, when what I'm used to is doing the, like, I'm going to push through and then I will magically find more stamina and what I'm actually finding is adrenaline, but I cannot (laughs) do that anymore. (laughs) Yeah, because doing that comes at a huge cost, which is not being able to do anything for several days. Right. And as I go through this process of slowing down and creating more spaciousness in my own life, I'm going, what if this is actually what we're supposed to do, how we're actually supposed to live? What if all these different chronic fatigue conditions for all the biological components that are absolutely involved in them? What if there is also an aspect of this where there is some deep wisdom in us that is saying you need to slow the fuck down because what is happening in the world is too fast. It has the potential to transform us on a deep cultural level yeah. because so many are in, impacted by this and so many are having to do this right now. Mm-hmm. And I think many people are tuning into the wider conversation of that, of like, do we need to be running around and working our butts off in these 40 hour work weeks and working for below living wage and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which brings us all the way back to the political aspect of anarchism. Totally. Yeah, (laughs) totally. (laughs) Yes. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I have rheumatoid arthritis and it's progressive, which I think is really terrifying. And I've been noticing the ways that my body is aching more and more and I'm having to pull back and it's been so hard to like listen to that. So like that process of slowing down, I want to like echo with you and the, the pain of like wanting to push and push and push and like being like completely unable to. And it's just an interesting thing, I think, to get comfortable with that process. And it makes me think, about like, you know, abusive relationships. And mm. when we've been in, you know, like the research on nervous systems, when you've been in a heightened state of stress, 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 like we, one, we don't even notice, like we don't even notice because we've no. been so normalized. Right. And then when you think about the research with dogs who were like, they'd have the, um, the shock, you know, where they like, they try and get yeah. out of the cage and then they'd shock them. They try and get out, they shock them. They try and get out, they shock them. And then they'd stop the shocking but open up the door and the dog had learned helplessness. So the dog wouldn't yeah. even leave anymore because it was so helpless from all those times. I like when we think about the political nature of all these structures going on, mm -hmm. so many of us don't even know how hunched our shoulders are mm -hmm. and how much we're hurting in our bodies. So yeah, is deeper questions. Like I'm thinking of um, Dr. Kong Khan. She talks a lot about this, like our inflammation, our chronic disease, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Like how much of that is a response to a system that is overworking us and yeah. going beyond what we really should be, but because of our yeah. life and everything, we've just normalized this. Yeah. I think that future revolutions will get to maybe see what a world looks like in a different context. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Well, I, I have a background as a body worker and I, I still do massage part-time. And one of the things that fascinates is me is how disconnected we are from our bodies. And, and I, you know, in the work that I do with people, I talk about, you know, how we dissociate and there are ways we dissociate and it's all for safety. Yeah. And we will dissociate from the state that our body is in when our body hurts. Right when our body is not comfortable. And yeah, there's a thousand reasons that could be that we are, you know, have an accident or an injury, or we're not using our body in right. the right way, or we have a food sensitivity that we've tuned out from for 30 years, all these different reasons we might tune out from our body. And where do we go when we tune out from our body? Very often we go into our head, right? We might go other places. We might go into spiritual bypassing. We might go into like huge emotional states, but most commonly we seem to go into our head because I can intellectualize. I can have a safe place here. I can disconnect. And also in disconnecting from our body, we can disconnect from how things are impacting us emotionally. We can disconnect from all the different states of our nervous system and push through situations of abuse in our relationships in our workplace because that's the survival thing that we feel like we have to do and and that feeling of learned helplessness that we get in our culture that you're describing you know it keeps so many of us stuck in that place of well this is just how it is yeah I guess I got to accept it and just keep going and having been in that place myself you know to have that moment of recognition of, well, what if I could imagine a different life for myself? And what if I could take a step towards that? Maybe I'm not going to get that right away because immediate gratification sure, is not healthy, but what if I could take a step towards that? And then maybe another step and another step. And something I've been tuning into recently is in that learned helplessness that many of us have, 
it doesn't feel safe to think about planning for the future. Mm. You know, a lot of people I'm learning struggle to think about planning far ahead because we don't know what's going to happen. We, we don't know if we're going to be resilient for that. I don't want to make a plan and then be disappointed if it doesn't right. happen right. because we feel that we have that helplessness going on. Whereas we can actually step out of that space of helplessness if we start to think about planning. And I always tell people like, don't just make one plan, make five different plans. That's how you cultivate resilience for yourself. Sure. And, you know, in my own life, I've, I've gone from like not being able to plan at all because of trauma to going, okay, what's the carrot I'm going to dangle in front of my own face as like, I'm going to follow this to keep me going. And then okay, what could be the plan beyond that? Mm -hmm. And again, going back to the way that we relate, when we're in that Pokemoning kid in the candy store phase, we may not be thinking far ahead. I think one of the most powerful questions you can ask yourself and ask potential partners is, what do you envision in your relationship landscape five or 10 years from now? What would you like to see? Or how would you like it to feel? Yeah. You know, I, I feel like I'm perpetually chasing the idea of like a community of people where we all have our own individual home, but we live on the land, you know, the, the classic yeah. utopia, yeah, totally. <laughs> the, the queer anarchist poly uh, village. Um, yes. It's so unique. Yeah, um, <laughs> totally. Never thought of that before. <laughs> but um, am I moving towards it? Yeah. Am I as far along towards it as I would like to be? No. Mm -hmm. uh, but I feel closer to it than I used to be. And along the way, I've learned so much more about what I would like to include in that vision and not that landscape is cultivating. Yeah. Um, and so I think to have that ability to go, I'm just going to take that plunge and plant seeds and not just plant one seed. When you are gardening, you don't just plant one seed. You plant many because not all are going to germinate and you plant them in different parts of the garden just in case like, you know, a swarm of locusts comes along or something mm -hmm. so yeah I, I think this is a, a very important part that we don't think about enough of like can we visualize can we think about that long term to step out of that scarcity mentality that mm -hmm. help that learned helplessness of I just gotta live in the moment mm -hmm. and go I do live in this moment and I will continue to live in future moments so what can I grow? What can I invite in? Who can I collaborate with to create better moments for the future? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That was beautiful. <laughs> it is, right? Being able to see out and have a vision, stay in the present moment and appreciate where you are, like we were talking about earlier, but also kind of have this loose laid dream of where yeah. you want to be, right? I think I'm always talking about what it means to follow your pleasure because it is my belief that, you know, it starts to hit on some of my like early Christianity stuff where it was like, you can hear the spirit speaking to you when you tune in. <laughs> so it's like, damn, I hate to go down that path. But like, I do believe that like when you get quiet, like there's always that rumbling. There is always that rumbling of like, pleasure of where is yeah. pleasure right and i i can know what things don't feel good what things feel like that shoe is too small but like getting quiet to start thinking about like yeah what brings me pleasure like you said what is that dream relationship 
community constellation in five, 10 years. And to have that and hold that as like a light post that you're always kind of swimming closer towards mm -hmm. enjoying that journey of that adventure of getting closer to that. I mean, mm -hmm. there's so much joy there. There is so much joy there. And, and I, I think the joy is so important to think about. And, and that's where like having these kinds of conversations and painting that those pictures for people who are just beginning to think about this yeah. and who are in that state of like, oh, this feels terrifying. I don't know if this is safe or not. I don't know what to orient towards. You know, we need to think about, well, where are people getting to already in this? Mm -hmm. What is the possibilities that people are dreaming up and creating and actually achieving? Yeah. Um, that, that I think is really important because I think there's a lot of experiments and explorations that achieve some things and, and fall short on others. And that's okay because we don't have to be perfect right. and it's a work in progress. Absolutely. Um, yeah, having more conversations to create those spaces where people can explore their ideas is so, so important. I mean, I, I see that whenever I'm running non-monogamy groups, whether that's workshops or courses or just my local discussion group, like the empowerment that comes from just coming together and talking about it mm -hmm. and finding language and finding you know, oh, I heard somebody say something and I felt that I now feel inspired and tuning into that awareness of who else is there and that you're not alone. Mm -hmm. You know, these are all important components of how we, the, the how of how we deconstruct those yeah. power structures and move into a completely different way of relating. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And may it be so, I hope that this podcast does that, right? When I'm talking about the way I build my garden and you're talking mm -hmm. about the way you build your garden and that one person, you know, in the middle of that isolation in terms of ideological connection is wanting to build the garden and they hear that we're doing it and thriving in the garden. Mm -hmm. My God, I love my garden. It is mm -hmm. bountiful. And so like to have spaces where we can have those conversations like that here, like I, I hope that that's a part of what this podcast can do for people. And I think one of the most beautiful things about thriving in that garden is that you can thrive in that garden, even when the garden isn't all joy. Mm. Oh yeah. You it know, well, it's it, storms. It, yeah. There are <laughs> storms. There are rocky times. Oh, and, yeah. you know, I, I was talking with one of my friends about this the other day about this beautiful anarchy that we have grown together that you know, it's not just us, it's, it's the extended network of people. And, and that through the last few years, we've all gone through shit that wasn't just to do with the pandemic. It was other things going on too. And that even when things were dire and hard and stormy, we had the connection for each other and you know to me it's it like the idea of secure attachment it shouldn't be reserved for like dyadic partnerships secure attachment is experienced through community mm -hmm. and what i think relationship anarchy gives us is the opportunity to build networks of secure attachment yeah. and that is the joy that you have support the resilience that you have is not just your own Mm -hmm. but is resilience that is sourced through your relationships as well. Yeah. And that even when everybody is having a rough time because the world, 
we can still come together and find moments of joy and laughter and, and crying and support and empathy and humanity. Mm -hmm. Mm. I want to hold a little bit of space too, as we come towards the end of our time. If, I mean, we talked about so many different things and I feel like as a relationship anarchist, I could probably spend hours talking to you about these ideas because <laughs> then I'm like, well, what about a secure attachment to our earth? Because that doesn't feel secure right now because of the realities of what's happening mm-hmm. like that. That attachment doesn't feel secure, you know, so I'm like, we I'm sure some disorganized attachment going on there. For totally. Sure. <laughs> I was like, I could just keep going. So I'm trying to like stop myself, mostly because when I edit these back, I'm like in the middle of school years and I'm like a two hour conversation is too long. <laughs> So, but I like to like hold space at the end in case maybe there was something we didn't talk about that you wanted to share with the listeners. I -hmm. will ask you to plug at the end and I do have Mm -hmm. a closing question, but I like to create Mm -hmm. a little bit of space. Mm -hmm. I think just to expand on that idea of an anarchule, you know, in in non-monogamy, people talk about polycules and I Mm. think that's great. And for me, I've really explored that decentering sex as the primary marker of what makes a relationship significant and going actually the people who are most significant to me are often my non-sexual relationships and like they are the anchor points in my life Mm -hmm. Uh, I think having explored non-monogamy as a solo polyamorous person that has been so healthy and helpful for me and so that this word anarchy like my network of relationships is founded on these platonic connections that are deeply loving deeply supportive and are not geographically centralized right and and some of these people are people that i may not see all the time but we are there for each other when we need it we are there for each other in the celebrations we are there for each other in the the tragedies and we're like our therapists help us too, but we also help each other with the therapy that needs to go into the healing work of being human. Oh yeah. I'm all here for the world <laughs> where we could be dismantling the field of psychology to bring us back into community connection. Yeah. Yeah. Until then we've got our systems, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and so yes. I, I encourage people to, you know, explore that in whatever way works for you and and it is a conscious effort it doesn't just happen by accident it's just like with other dating relationships you do need to put work into it but to explore that name it however makes sense for you and um see what can change when you do that yeah absolutely I don't even know if I want, I'm going to keep opening up cans of worms here because like when you say that, I think I've had such pain points with people, not that I couldn't connect with someone who's monogamous. That's not what I'm saying. They're a relationship anarchist who are monogamous, but I've found that when I'm trying to build that world of decentralizing sex and then connecting with people Mm -hmm. who do practice monogamy, I end up getting put on the side. I end up being put as a back burner and it is not the same level of intentional relationship that I am trying to build. And so like, I've had to be a little bit like conscious of like who I choose to invest that in, in the platonic relationships, because depending on what frame they're coming from, like I am just this like casual friend in their life that they're not going to show up for on those days where it's hard. So like there is so much nuance into that of like creating that world with people who have the same values. 
Yeah. Like, are you operating on the same paradigm? Yep. And, you know, is this reciprocal? And I, it, it, it's kind of similar to the fair weather friend phenomenon, right? Yeah. Of like, oh, we can be friends and hang out when your partner's away or you're single. And as soon as you get a partner, yeah. you disappear it because hurts. you're getting pulled back into that paradigm of yeah. this is now my person and yep. I have to be this two-headed monster with them. And um, my friendship with you is a threat, et cetera, et cetera. Like, <laughs> I, I think- <laughs> Pain points. <laughs> Pain points, absolutely. And I, I think that um, that's one of the, the sort of bigger challenges that we face. Yeah. I joke. I tell people, I'm like, what I do in my work is very selfishly motivated. And I mean, this is truthful. My selfish motivation is this. I want to have an easier time having relationships in the world. Yeah. I want to be able to go out there and relate with people on and find that we are on the same page and share the same values. Mm -hmm. That is my selfish motivation. And the way that I do that is putting my work out there in the world so that I then connect with other people who are on the same page. Hey. <laughs> and then we can create bigger things that connect with other people who are on the same page. And that, and, and I'm so glad this is starting to happen in my life. And then I encounter people who are talking about the things that I've been talking about and we've never met. Mm. And it's so beautiful. Yeah. And, and then we get to explore new things together. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it is, it's not easy. It's a challenge, yeah. but I, I remind myself 10 years ago, none of this conversation was happening right. 10 years ago. If you went into a non-monogamous space and said, no, you really should care about how you're impacting other people in your relationships. And these rules that you're imposing are coming from a space of fear and control. You'd have been left out of that room. I mean, I, I was, wow, <laughs> I, yeah. I was, I, I faced a lot of uh, stigma, I think, because I, and, and pushback because I was willing to question that status quo in the non-monogamy communities that I was in. So we've come so far already. So how much further could this be in 10 years? Yeah. It's exciting. It is. It's tantalizing, mm -hmm. dare I say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited. I was, as you, before you even used 10 years, I was like, check in with me in 10 years and let's see where we're at. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm excited. Uh. Well, if it feels good to you, I will guide us towards our closing question. Sounds great. Okay. So the one question I ask each guest is, what is one thing that you wish other people knew was more normal? Mm. Anywhere. Yeah. I wish people knew it was more normal, that it's okay to have conflict in a loving relationship and that conflict does not mean an end. And that conflict can be something that brings you into deeper knowing of each other. Yes, absolutely. And conflict is not abuse. Yes. Yeah. It is, <laughs> yeah. It is not abuse. And, it, and it, we can grow and thrive through having conflict. I mean, mm -hmm. so my, my mom's family grew up in Greece. And, you know, when you hear Greek people talking in Greek, they sound like they're arguing. <laughs> 
like that's just the level of passion that they have and the, the intonations of the language and and there is a ferocity around that and 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 I think there's something culturally ingrained through a lot of the Mediterranean and Middle East around when we communicate we're direct and we tackle things head on and we engage in that debate because it is good for us and we learn and we we get to deepen our relationship that way. And I, I think um, in colonial culture, we have avoided conflict because of a survival. If I'm farming on the prairies of Canada and there is a bad crop, I'm going to need my friend Bob's help to survive through winter. So I don't want to argue with Bob. Right. Sure. And, and that's, I think where a lot of that conflict avoidance has come out of, um, as well as just like the, the religious impositions and, and all of that. But I, I see it particularly as someone who lives in Canada who didn't grow up here. I'm like, Whoa, this is different, but that conflict and debate and argument doesn't have to be aggressive. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't have to do harm, that it doesn't have to be done in a way that demolishes or destroys, that it is okay for us to voice difference. It is okay for us to question each other. It is okay for us to hold each other to account to higher standards. And it is okay to say, I don't, I don't agree with you. And we don't yeah. have to like fall apart over that. We can go, right. okay, well, what do you, what do you want? What do you agree on? You know, that this can be an avenue for us to find collaboration, which is the foundation of consent, which is the foundation of relationship. When we avoid conflict, we avoid facing reality. We put ourselves living in what I call the necessary fantasy of a relationship. We need a fantasy of relationship at the beginning because we don't know who the other person is. We think sure. we know, and we create a fantasy that keeps us safe enough, deals with that ambiguity until we can know. And hopefully over time, the reality that comes in is not too different from the fantasy. But anytime we do experience a difference, we're going to experience conflict. And that's where you get into those arguments where you're like, what do you mean you like country music? I never knew that. Well, who are you? I don't know you. Like, And it's okay that we experience conflict and recognizing conflict as part of that process of getting to know someone deeper, getting to know more truth. And I think one of the big things in our world today that we are tackling with is that within spaces of conflict, we are digging into ideological positions that do not allow for compassion. Mm, yeah. And I, I have, strong boundaries there are certain types of people that are not allowed in my life and yeah. at the same time I work on cultivating compassion for why is it that they have bought into this and if I were to encounter somebody how do I engage with them in a way that we can experience that conflict without it being without it being abusive without it being harmful without it damaging our ability to connect as human beings how can yeah. we invite understanding there yeah and as a woman mm -hmm. dare i mention any frustration mm -hmm. or any emotion it has to be through a smile and a giggle oh, yeah <laughs> i know i know i'm working on dismantling that one myself to be able to be like i'm pissed and i'm angry 
and I can hold that emotion and choose to not let that pour out on you in a way that is harmful, mm -hmm. but I am pissed and I feel that, right? So like, there's just so much nuance to all the ways like this whole conversation has been talking about like liberating ourselves from the systems that are telling us to be in this way that telling us our worth is to die tied to productivity that there is one relationship escalator like there's just so many ways that all of these things are central to our pleasure our relationships mm -hmm. and our life mm -hmm. i mean it's it's been such a juicy conversation with mm -hmm. you to talk about all these things and, and i do look forward to in 10 years <laughs> where we will be in this space I know. it's exciting yeah it is very exciting. Where would you want to plug so people can connect with you mm -hmm. and all of your work? So if you want to find out more about my work, uh, my website is radicalrelationshipcoaching.ca. And you can also find me on Instagram and on Facebook and on threads at Radical Relating. I have a TikTok. I don't really use it all that much. It's mostly pictures of my cat, but I'm doing better with it. Um, <laughs> sure. But you can also find me there. So at Radical Relating is my social media handle. And then I offer a course twice a year called the Monogamy Detox. It's a relationship workshop, but it's, so, it's also a social change workshop that is really exploring the how we switch this paradigm around in ourselves, in our intimate relationships. You can find more about that at monogamydetox.com. Great. And I'll have all that linked in the show notes below so people can directly connect with you. Mm, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for coming on the show. If you enjoyed today's episode, then leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast and head on over to modernanarchypodcast.com to get resources and learn more about all the things we talked about on today's episode. I want to thank you for tuning in and I will see you all next week.